All right. Last week we were in John chapter 4 for the Bible study exercise. This week has been John chapter 5 for the Bible study exercise. And there's, there's a lot of things uh, we could say about John chapter 5. And, and there's a lot, like part of me wants to just open up the text and like, hey guys, let's just work through it. Uh, but we're going to do something a little different, all right? So let's start with this. Let's start with the definition for the word sign. Sign. Sign, right? S-I-G-N, sign, right? Let's, let's start with a definition, and I'm going to give you a number of them, okay? Are you ready? All right. An object, quality, or event whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. Sign, an object, quality, or event whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. In other words, a sign points to something else. And that's very important to understand that, right? In other words, if, if you are a female and some, someone knocks on the door and you open the door and they're like, delivery, and they hand you flowers. What do the flowers represent? Okay, they, they point to something, right? It's not the flowers, right? The flower is supposed to point to some kind of what? Uh, either an apology, okay? Okay, love, okay? okay, Or something, right? It, it's pointing to something else. Does that make sense? It's, it's an object, it's, a, it's something, it points to something other than that. In other words, it's something more than just a flower. They're not just sending you a flower. The flower represents something beyond that. Does that make sense? Uh, it can be a, 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 gest, a gesture, action used to convey information or instructions. Right? That, but so, once again, it's something, an action, a gesture, a movement that is, again, pointing to some kind of information or instruction. But I like that first one. It's an object, a quality, or an event whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. Now, you may be asking, what does that have to do with John chapter 5? Well, it really has something to do more than John chapter 5. It has to do something with the entire Gospel of John. Because in the Gospel of John, if you're not aware of this, there are seven signs. The Gospel of John, at least the first half, is built around these signs. In other words, there are things in John, right, that point to something else. And sometimes this, a lot of times people miss the point of these signs. And if you miss the point of the signs, you then miss the point of everything, right? Okay, so there is a, a, I mentioned this on the podcast there is a book about the seven signs of the Gospel of John, and I'm going to be referencing it here or there to kind of get us started, and then we're going to make possibly look. Because obviously, if, if we're in John 5, this is a good, you probably don't need to be a rocket science to figure this out. If we're in John 5, and I'm talking about signs, then John 5 is obviously one of those, oh, look at that, y'all can figure that out, you don't even need me, so I'm just going to go home, all right? But this book starts off with an introduction that I think is important. All right, so are you ready? Here we go. They start with this. Every day of our lives, 
we rely on some form of sign. Every day we look to signs, right? Yes? Signs are all over the place, right? They point to this or they point to that or point to this. If you're driving somewhere, do you see lots of signs that point to this? Obviously, if you see a sign that says exit two miles for food, you don't stop at the sign. Yeah, you don't pull over at the sign and go, where's my food? The sign's pointing you to something else. Does that make sense? Okay, so I think, I think that is important, and we didn't need the book to tell us that. They go on to say this. Signs provide us with information and guide us to our desired destination. That makes sense. When you see a highway sign that says Boston 40 miles, we know that we've not yet arrived in Boston, but we're heading in the right direction. If we continue along this road, we will eventually get to Boston. Signs are also important in the Bible. Now, we got to be careful here, right? Because what's the danger hermeneutically? Is that you can start turning anything into a sign. And then you can start like missing what's there because you're looking for something that's not there. So this is already, this produces hermeneutical challenges. And there's not always agreements. Right? A good example, John the Baptist. Right? Everyone find the passage that describes what John the Baptist was wearing and eating. You know it's in the gospel, right? Okay. So that, that narrows it down. Start in, either Ma- start in Matthew would be a good place. You know, it's going, to be in the, it's going to be before the Sermon on the Mount. That starts in what, chapter 5. So you know you're somewhere between chapters 1 and 4 of Matthew is where you can start looking. Find where you, and see how, how, how if, 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 he, if the description there is sufficient. Okay, Matthew 3, 4. Okay, what is, how, how is he described in Matthew 3, 4? He's wearing camel's hair, a, a leather girdle, a leather, leather type belt, okay? Locusts and wild honey. Now, that's odd from, from just reading your Bible. Does everyone feel that that's a little odd that it describes his clothing? Does it describe the clothing of Jesus? Describe the clothing of Peter? Paul? John? Judas? No, not, not, and if it does, it's very, it's like, just, like, maybe it will, very little information, yes? Now, when you look at this, there's lots of discussions in, church, in hermeneutics about what's going on. Now, there's a couple of things that we think about. John the Baptist is the, fir, is the last what? Last Old Testament prophet. Oh, that's interesting. The Old Testament prophets sometimes did things as a sign. Ah, so a lot of people look at John the Baptist and go, oh, he's wearing his clothing. He's wearing something that would be considered unclean because he's picturing that Israel is unclean before God. That's why they need to be baptized to signify that they need to be they need to be united to a different way of, 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 of moving forward. He's eating wild honey. Many believe honey typically represents the gospel, but wild represents false gospels, that they had turned to false religion. He's eating locusts. Locusts typically represents judgment. So Israel 
is unclean before God because they have taken false gospels and they now are under the God's judgment. That's how many interpret. That's a simple, simple, simple example. We could go into much more detail, but we could go in much more detail. In other words, they would say all of that is a sign. Now, the problem is, does the text tell us that? That's the, that's the hermeneutical difficulty, right? It's one thing if it says, this represents this, this represents this, this represents that, then we can all agree. But I don't have anything to tell you. I can go tell you, well, is the camel clean or unclean? Okay, wild honey. Okay, honey, we can kind of see how that can kind of fit the gospel or the word of God, right? Because we desire the word of God more than honey and the honeycomb, that they were going to go into a land flowing with milk and honey. That seems to be good. But wild honey seems to be something contrary. Locust, we clearly know how that fits with judgment, right? But that's me doing a lot of putting it together. Now, the only thing I, the only thing I can work on is it's, do you believe it's out of place that it describes his clothing? Yes. Clearly out of place. He isn't last Old Testament prophet. So that gives me at least some level of confidence. But can I be dogmatic about that? No. That's the problem with, with anything saying something is a sign. But most believe that in the Gospel of John, that these do serve as signs. Right, so and we'll have to we'll have to look at that. But you can see where it could be it could be difficult. Yes, all right, okay. Um, signs they say are also important in the Bible, like the signs in our daily lives. Signs in the Bible point to something beyond themselves. But what sets biblical signs apart from the signs of daily life is that biblical signs direct us to spiritual truths. We can agree with that. When God provides a sign, He's using it to point people to an essential spiritual truth. All right, um, and then well, they go on. Well, we're going to skip that paragraph. And then they say the presence and purpose of signs in the Old Testament. So first they're going to try to demonstrate that signs were present in the Old Testament. All right, so here's, here's some things they're going to sh- try to show. The signs in the Old Testament most often involve God performing a supernatural event, sometimes through a human servant. A great example of this is in, is in Exodus, where God performed many signs and wonders through his servant Moses. And he did a lot of signs and wonders there, right? Okay. Uh, the plagues on Egypt were clearly a miraculous event. It would be a mistake, however, to conclude that all signs in the Old Testament were, were miraculous. But that by the time of the prophets, God used very mundane things as signs. Consider, for example, the prophet Isaiah. He walked around naked and barefoot for three years. Well, when, when, when you got the prophet walking around nude for three years, can't we all agree that that's a... I think we would think it's a sign, right? Okay, okay. We would think, uh, why, why, why is he walking around nude for three years? Like, I think everybody would be a little concerned, right? Hey, is that your preacher? Yeah. Uh, how come he doesn't wear clothes? Okay. That would be a little strange. Right? Clearly, that's a sign. That, that one's not hard to figure out, right? Now, when we go back to Moses, we do know some of those things are signs because we, it's basically told to us in Scripture, right? The whole Passover. We know it's a sign because the New Testament refers to Christ as our Passover. Okay, that makes it simple, yes? The parting of the Red Sea. Now, we could argue that the plagues, now now this is where you have to speculate, right? 
that each plague was an attack upon an Egyptian deity. Now, if you look at the Egyptian deities, you look at each plague, hmm, they definitely, they definitely are going after Egyptian deities. There's no question about it. We've studied that. And each one, you're like, oh, and how do we, so then, but if you look into Exodus, you start realizing, well, wait a minute, God is performing all of these plagues because he's demonstrating that he is a superior God to their gods. So in other words, because he could have got them out of Egypt without, he didn't need to do all of that, right? He could have just said, they're gone, but he didn't. So the plagues were an attack upon each. So therefore, those plagues pointed to something bigger. What was it pointing to? The superiority of God over the false gods of Egypt. So, so there was, but that one is a little bit more harder to find because you got to go study what? Egyptian deities, <laughs> right? Who is the, the, the sun god, the, the god of the Nile? I mean, the, the, you know, frogs, every, the cattle. Clearly they worshiped cattle. Clearly they worshiped the sun. Clearly they worshiped the Nile. Well, the Nile's bleeding to death. That's a pretty frightening thing for an Egyptian to see, right? So clearly the, it was there. But sometimes they're clear. Sometimes they're not so clear, but sometimes it can be something as mundane as Isaiah walking around without clothes for three years. Okay, that's, that's and, and what was it a sign of? Does anybody remember? It was a sign of judgment against the nations of Egypt and Ethiopia. Similarly note, the mundane nature of the following sign from the, pro- the prophecy of Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and tell me what you see. Ezekiel 4, verses 1 through 3. I have to go quickly through these, but that's okay. You, you should know this one, but you can look at it. You can read it for yourself and tell me what happens. You know, I like to do that. I like to have you look at it for yourself. I know you're like, what? you could read it to me. I could, but that wouldn't be any fun. Yeah? What, what happens? What does he do? Yeah, he takes like a tile. He, he does it, he lays it before him, right? And what does he put upon it? The city, even Jerusalem, and lays siege against it and build a fort against it, and cast a mount against it, set the camp also against it, set battering rams around about. Moreover, take thou an iron pan, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it, and it shall besiege, and thou shalt lay siege against it. There shall be a sign to the house of Israel. Basically, he's to do what? He's build like a model, and get down and play with it. You're like, what is he doing? What is he doing? He's like building all of these, an iron pan. That's, that's, that's actually a wall, right? Like, what? It's an iron pan. Like, the literal people would be like, that's an iron pan. What are you doing? And like, no, no, this is a spiritual sign. You'd be like, you're playing toys. You're, 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 you're like playing war. What is this? But it's supposed to be what? A sign. Now there, we love that one, right? Because the text literally says, this shall be a sign to the house of it. We love when it clearly says. The problem is when it doesn't say. That's, that's where we get into so much difficulty hermeneutically. If it says it, nobody can argue. If it doesn't, what do you have to do? The best I can say, you've just got to be very careful and you've got to have something in the text that screams, something else seems to be going on here. 
right? Something else seems to be going on here, right? Like when you read Ruth, there's something else seems to be going on there, sins to. But then you've got to be careful. Song of Solomon. That's when it gets, I mean, if you've, if you've been paying attention to Christianity this week, everyone lost their minds this week because of the article that was written um, by the Gospel Coalition that led to the man having to resign and the article being deleted and everyone losing their absolute minds because he tried to take the, the story, of, in, well, the, the illustration used by Paul in Ephesians that speaks of a man and a woman are going to leave mother and father and going to become one flesh and how this points to Christ and the church. Well, the man decided to write a book kind of about this, but uh, there's no way to describe it other than he uses some very graphic language to describe the union between a man and a woman physically as pointing to Christ and the church. But he does so in a very explicit way. I mean, it's like you're kind of looking at the language and you're kind of going, whoa, yo, I don't know if we need to go that far, right? Like, do we? So then everyone lost their mind. Now, personally, I think they should have kept the article there. They should have had people write counterpoints. Then they should have had, they have a podcast, and they should have discussed it because it's a hermeneutical debate. Like, when you have this illustration in Ephesians, how far do you push it? Like, if it's a sign, how graphic do I need to get in the sign? Well, this leads to a discussion about the Song of Solomon. Some people inter- interpret the Song of Solomon to be about what? Christ and the church. Oh, that sounds so good when you read the first couple of verses. Remember we tried this one time, right? Remember? It preached really good for about how many verses? For about four or five verses. And then all of a sudden it got really uncomfortable. They were like, oh, yo, I don't know if I want to go there. Right? I'd, I don't know. It started getting really weird, Right? So, so then we kind of like, well, maybe the Song of Solomon is just a book about the physical relationship between a man and a woman, and maybe we should leave it there. Because by taking that as a sign, you see where, it, because the Song of Solomon doesn't say, hey, this is a sign, does it? See where the, and sometimes you can see something go, well, that is a sign. Then the question is, how far do you take it? Because the person for the Gospel Coalition was simply trying to say, well, the text says, Man and woman should leave their father and mother and they should join and become one flesh. And then the very next verse says, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Great. So he's comparing the union between a man and a woman with Christ and the church. Wonderful. But how far do we need to go in describing it? Before it becomes really, and people lost their minds. <laughs> okay, Christianity melted down this week. They were like, what is happening here? If you read it, it would be, you, I mean, I, could, I, don't, I wouldn't even be comfortable reading it here. I wouldn't. Especially if young people were around because it would be really get odd because it would be like, I don't know, parents being like, I don't want my kids to learn about that from you, right? So that's how uncomfortable it got. So, but once again, it was trying to take a sign and explaining it. That's the problem with signs and from a hermeneutical standpoint. I want everyone to understand that, right? That's the problem with signs is how do we work this? Because I guarantee you, we could take any text and you could say, it's a sign. And you, I mean, it's not a sign. No, it is a sign. And we could, we could go all day. So, but Ezekiel 4, it is a sign. It says, in this account, an ordinary iron pan was a sign. 
But clearly, like other signs in the Old Testament, um, but clearly it, like other signs in the Old Testament, was miraculous. Biblical signs can be miraculous, but not always. We see a gradual shift of the miraculous nature of signs. They're less so as we move from Exodus to the time of the prophets, and that's true. In Exodus, you have all of these amazing things happen that we think serve as a sign, and then it becomes very much more ordinary, like walking around nude. Well, I mean, that's not ordinary, but... In other words, it's not a miracle, right? I mean, anybody can take off their clothes and walk around nude, right? But that, it's weird, right? Or the things that we're eating. Remember, is in Ezekiel who's told to bake bread, right? That some people want to use for like a diet, but it was supposed to picture something, Yes? Everybody remember that? Okay. All right. Um, but one thing is evident, and all the signs of the Old Testament, all Old Testament signs serve to authenticate God's appointed divine messengers so that people would believe the message they brought. Okay. I'm going to say that the signs, they were there to authenticate that this prophet was from God, but I don't, I don't like reducing it to that. They, these signs were to point to other things. In other words, you were seen to beyond the signs, right? You were to see beyond it. And if you didn't see beyond it, then you missed the point. It wasn't, and I think in many cases, it wasn't just to point to the messenger. It was to point to the message. Does that make sense? Or at least I, I believe so. These signs in Exodus confirm the authenticity of Moses as God's messenger and thereby authentic, uh, authenticated his message as divine. In the pro- prophetic period, God used signs as to, to authenticate his prophet as human oracles of his message so that people would believe God's message. Again, I, I don't have a problem saying that it authenticated the messenger, but I, I think it went beyond that because then you're just using the sign to get to the person. But I think the sign went beyond that. But it can do that. So then the question is, in the Gospel of John, if there are signs, what are those signs there to do? Simply authenticate Jesus or to point to something else? That's something that we could figure out. Now, while signs are recorded in various places in the New Testament, they take a prominent role in the Gospel of John. This is the claim. That there are signs in the New Testament, but the prominent place is where? The Gospel of John. That's where they, they, they feel, and I think that that's what we're going to discuss. The Gospel of John is uniquely different from the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The uniqueness of the Gospel of John can be seen in what it leaves out in comparison to the subject matter of the synoptic, synoptic Gospels. Unlike the synoptic Gospels, John's Gospel lacks the nativity story, the temptation of Christ by Satan, the narrative parables, extensive teaching on the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, and a detailed account of the Lord's Supper. All of that's left out. Now, if it's left out, it's left out, obviously, for a reason, a purpose. On the other hand, the Gospel of John contains much that is not found in the Synoptic Gospels. For example, the Gospel of John includes the I Am sayings of Jesus, the Farewell Discourse, and the Seven Signs of Jesus seven signs, all right? These seven signs play a prominent role in the structure of the Gospel of John. These signs exclusively appear in the first half of John. And here is a list of the seven signs. Right. Can anybody guess what the seven signs are? 
Okay? If you have your Bibles, go to John 2 first and identify the first one. Go to John 2 and identify the first one. Turning water into wine. There's sign number one. Right? There's sign number one. Now, when you see Jesus turning water into wine, you have a couple of options when you read the story, right? Some people preach the story, and, they, and the story goes like this. Hey, no matter how insignificant something is in your life, Jesus cares about it, and he will help you out. Is that the purpose of Jesus turning water into wine? I think it possibly is a sign. What could it be a sign of? Well, there's some interesting things going on in the text, right? Look, when he, when he tells them what to do, what does he tell them to do? Just, just if you notice, if you just look at it. He tells them to do something. Some water pots, right? How many? Six. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Remember in the first part of John? What does it make? It makes a claim about Jesus in John chapter 1. What's the claim it makes about Jesus in John 1? Not only that he was with God, that he was God, but it makes another claim about Jesus in John chapter 1. Oh, involved in creation. All things were made by him. Now, all of a sudden in John 2, they're going to authenticate this in a certain way. He's going to take six water pots and he's going to create something. Six, how many days of creation? Okay, I think there's something going on there, right? And he rested on the seventh, yes? Okay, so I think there's something going on there to beyond just the fact, oh, look, these poor people ran out of wine. Isn't that a tragedy? Aren't we so glad Jesus cares about our little problems? That's how I was kind of, I've heard that preached a thousand. I'm like, I don't think that's the point here, right? I mean, he seemed to even bother that he was being asked, right? Why, why, hey, woman, what are you, why are you asking me? It's not my time. But he still goes ahead and does it. And something dramatic was taking place. Because to take water and to turn it into wine, that's an act of creation. Yes? I mean, there's a whole molecular change has to take place, right? Water is not just, does not just become wine. It's a creation. And it happens to be in six water pots. I think that's interesting, all right? Number next. Was, uh, look at John 2, look at verses 12 through 17. Two, 12 through 17. What happens there? Cleans the temple, all right? Clears the temple. Now, obviously, that d- this demonstrates he's upset with what's going on in the temple, yes? What else could it indicate? What, what could be a sign if it's a sign? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. I think you'd have to be of some serious authority to walk into the temple of God and start chasing people out with a whip. Is this not pointing to his divine authority? Or his deity? Agreed? I mean, how is it typically preached? Jesus was mad, we should be mad. But I think it's the point there is beyond that. Or, or possibly... All right, the next one, go to John chapter 4. 46 through 54. John 4, 46 through 54. What happens in John 4, 46 through 54? 
He heals the nobleman's son, right? Okay. Is there anything about interesting about this healing that you see that just jumps out at you just quickly? Son's at the point of death. He just speaks the word and it is done. I think that's kind of pointing to something, right? Power, deity, right? Yeah, okay, a lot, a lot of things, right? So, there's, so the first sign is turning water into wine, John 2, 1 through 11. Second is cleansing the temple, John 2, 12 through 17. Number three is healing the nobleman's son, John 4, 46 through 54. And then look at John 5, verses 1 through 15. And what do we have? The healing of the pool of Bethesda, that, is the, that was the text for study this week for the Bible study exercise, is John 5. Now we're going to look at this one in a little bit more detail. We're not going to, I mean, this is taking forever to go through, but that's okay. That, this is the one that everyone was supposed to focus on. So what I want us to do and think about is, how does this serve as a sign? We'll look at it in greater detail in just a minute. Okay, everybody ready? Go to John, look at the next one, John 6, verses 1 through 15. Feeding the multitude, John 6, verses 1 through 15. This has got to be more than just, well, Jesus fed some people, right? Because clearly, does Jesus just feed people? No, because over a couple thousands of people die every day in our world from starvation. So clearly it's not just the way it works. It's pointing to something, right? Yes? Deity, pointing to who he is. Look at uh, next, John chapter 9. He heals a man born blind. Anything interesting about the healing of this man in John 9 that you see that just jumps out at you really quick? I know we don't have time to work through all of these. Okay, well, he's born blind, okay. Look at verse 6. Something weird here when he heals this guy, is it not? He spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and then told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And that whole thing seem odd? The whole thing is odd. Because earlier he healed someone who didn't even have to show up. And in this one, he spits on the ground, puts it in the and then tells him to go bathe. And like, what, wait, what, Jesus, do you need a lot of help here? And the, what's the whole spitting thing? Now, some people say the spitting, spit represents curse or, con- uh, or you're condemning something. Clay represents that man is created from the dust of the earth, right? And so therefore man is condemned because we are sinners and we need to be cleansed. That, there's a lot of ways of possibly interpreting the sign, right? So in other words, a lot of people would say this point because it's an odd one. It doesn't make any sense. So people start trying to figure it out, all right? What's the next one? John chapter 11, we know this one. Yeah, the resurrection of Lazarus. I mean, that, that is obviously a unique one, is it not? I mean, that's, he's calling someone, and he waited till he was dead. I mean, the whole thing there. Again, and, there's a, and just the whole way it's described. He stinketh. All the things that happen what makes you go, what is going on? So what are the seven signs in John? Let's go through them quickly. 
Water into wine. The cleansing of the temple. Healing of the nobleman's son. The healing of the lame man. The feeding of the multitude. The healing of the blind man. And the raising of Lazarus. John 2. Uh, 1 through 11 is the turning water into wine. John 2, 12 through 17 is the cleansing of the temple. John 4, 46 through 54 is the healing of the nobleman's son. John 5, 1 through 15 is the healing of the lame man. John 6, verses 1 through 15 is the feeding of the multitude. John 9 is the healing of the blind man. And John 11 is the raising of Lazarus. All right. Now, John's unique emphasis on the signs of Jesus makes us wonder what the purpose of these signs serve in this gospel. What is John John trying to show us by using these seven signs? What spiritual truths should be learned from them? These questions can only be answered by examining each sign of the gospel of John. I agree. All right? They say, let us begin by considering what these seven signs have in common. One is that they were performed in public and the presence of witnesses. The signs of Jesus were not secretive. They were meant for the public to see. Another is that all these signs are specifically called signs in John's narrative. Some form of the Greek word for sign is used by John and referring to each of the seven signs. That is very important. That according to this, that all seven, the the Greek word usually for sign, shows up in the description of them, meaning that we can be pretty sure that they are actually signs. Does that make you feel better? That that should make you feel better, yes? Right? I hope so, all right? Uh, Because, uh, yeah, well, there's a whole discussion we could get in here. That tells us John wants his readers to understand these mighty acts of Jesus specifically as signs, interpreting them in light of what the Old Testament teaches about the nature and purpose of signs. It also informs us that John purposely links these signs to one another so that these signs share a common and collective purpose. John explains what this collective purpose is at the end of the gospel. So they're saying he clearly calls them signs. So to want us to see that they are connected. And when you get to the end of John, we find out what the purpose is. Does anybody know where in the end of John we would find the purpose of these signs? Does anybody know? It's in John chapter 20. Okay. John chapter 20. Look at verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So there are some signs not written. But look at the next verse. But these, what are the these? Signs. But these are written. These signs. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. These signs are to point you that Jesus is what? The Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, right? Right? And the Son of God. His messianic role and his deity. Each sign points to him as Messiah and points to him as being God. Yes? All right, I think that's very important. Um, 
John's signs have a similar purpose to those signs of the Old Testament. And there's a lot more we could go through here. Uh, But, yeah, we won't won't go here um, much more, all right? Um, Yeah, I want to read more. I want to read more. All right, go. Let's go to John five really quick. Oh, there's so much more I want to get into this, but we don't have time. I want us to at least go through John five. What time is it? Ah, time. Okay. Here we go. Everybody ready? John chapter five. We'll start in verse one. Okay. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having five porches. If you've got a Bible dictionary really quick, see if you can look, find an entry for Bethesda. See if you find an entry, an entry for Bethesda. If you do, someone yell out that you found it and where? What page number? 180. All right. Does it give us the meaning of the, of the name? House of Grace. Now, come on, people. That's interesting, right? Does that, that, that does not stop you immediately go, whoa, that's kind of interesting. House of Grace. Yes? House of Grace. That, that, I think that's significant, okay? All right, so, all right. Hey, the Yankees are about to play the Red Sox, okay? I, I got to go, okay? That's, that was that notification. Okay, it's a sign, right? I need to stop talking and go listen to baseball. Okay, all right, here we go. So, that, they're at the house of what? Grace. I think that's interesting. I think others may call it the house of mercy, I think, but house of grace, right? Do what? Okay, oh, there it is. Strong's definition. House of Mercy or House of Grace? House of Mercy. Okay. Mercy, Grace. I just think that that's fascinating to me. All right? So, and then what do we find in verse 3? In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. So they're all, now this is interesting, they are all there at the House of Mercy and Grace, and what are they looking to find mercy or grace from? All of their... Infirmities, good word. All of their infirmities. But what are they looking to to fix it? The moving of the water. Now the next verse is a major issue within the history of Christianity. Because the next verse says what? For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool. That's how the King James reads it. Stephen, you have the NIV? Does it mention the angel? Now, verse 4. Do you have a verse 4? It's not there, of course. Okay, all right. This is, a, this is an issue of what's called a textual variant. All right, everybody understand how textual variants work? Everybody know how textual variants work? Yes? Are we experts here? This church should be. Okay, you don't? Okay, good. I like, all right, this, make sure everybody understands. This is how, make sure everybody understands how this works, all right? This is how it did not work. When we go back in history, someone wasn't just walking along one day, 
and all of a sudden, a Bible fell from the sky, bounded in leather with a, a table of contents. Didn't work that way. We want to teach and preach it like that, but it didn't work that way, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? Guess what? There were people writing these books. Those original... Now, listen to me carefully. I know this is going to tick a lot of people off, but this is the only way to understand this. The original... The original was inspired by God. Where are the originals today? We do not have the originals. Guess what they did with the originals? They copied. And then someone copied a copied. And then someone copied the copy. And then someone copied the copy. Now, on one hand, it's wonderful that we have all of these manuscripts and all of these copies, right? Because we can compare them together and go, wow, Look, similar, 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 giving us a pretty good indication that this would be what the original would have said. But guess what the negative thing of all of these manuscripts are? The first, they're not the original. And secondly, there are variants in the manuscript. One manuscript may read one way, and a different manuscript may read another way. And guess what? There are more variants than there are actually words. Now, some of those variants, you know how important they are? None. You know what they amount to? Different word order. Different spelling. Right? Nothing significant. There are times where the variant is like, what in the world just happened? And then that's where textual criticism comes in, and then biblical scholars have to use a process going, what's the, what's the correct rendering here? What's the correct rendering? Now, the great thing in many study Bibles, and the great thing in many cases, we're given the various renderings, right? Sometimes we're not. Some of your Bibles will just say, some, translate, some manuscripts have this, some manuscripts don't. Guess what? Some manuscripts don't have any angels showing up here. The NIV, they use the manuscripts, and guess what? It's not even there. It's just not there. So, okay, some put in a subnote. So now some people get all nervous and, and, and go crazy about that, but you should know that. Every church, every pastor should tell you that there are textual issues sometimes. This is a textual issue. Now whether the angel is there or not there doesn't change the story, right? But it raises questions of what's going on. Obviously all these people are there. So they're all there because they think, well, they think something's going to happen. Some believe they were there because they thought there was medicinal uh, elements in the water. Other people thought, and some believe that maybe someone added in because they were trying to figure out why in the world, because this guy's getting ready to be there and he's been there for 38 years for crying out loud. So they believe something was going on. So some may have thought it was, a, maybe there, some believe it was a Jewish tradition then an angel came and someone placed it, some, someone copying placed it there. We don't know, but it's there. All we know this, this is what we can know. We can be dogmatic about this. These people were showing up thinking something was going to happen. They were coming to the house of mercy, the house of grace, to find mercy and grace, but they were looking not to God. They were looking to, now if you put an angel, maybe they were looking to God, but I think they were looking to a superstition. They were looking to something to find a solution. And clearly this guy's been there for 38 years that we're getting ready to read about, and he hadn't found it. All right? So in other words, you can go to the house of mercy and house of grace, but that doesn't mean you're going to find mercy and grace if you're looking for the wrong thing. 
right? Does that help you understand textual variance? Okay, all right. So we'll make sure it, it, we're, we're good to go on that, all right? So the angels, now, and please note, just the whole thing is bizarre because the angel went down at a certain season in the pool, troubled the water, and whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. That is a bizarre, if, that, if it's an angel, it would have to be from God. And this would be a bizarre way for God to do things. Hey, I'm going to stir up the water. Who gets there first? It immediately creates what kind of situation? Get back. I'm going for selfishness. It would not be selflessness. Everybody's trying. It would be a weird way for God to do things. So I believe that an, an angel wasn't actually showing up. I believe that there was a superstition that an angel was showing up. And people kept coming there thinking they were going to be healed. And they were being left with, I think, no hope. Because this man's been there. Well, well, you're, well I know I keep giving you the, uh, I keep giving it away. All right, but I don't like to do that. But all right, here we go. Next, verse five. And a certain man was there which had been in a, had an infirmity for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been there a long time, he said unto him, well, thou be made whole. Kind of a ridiculous question, okay? Obviously, I want to be made whole. But here, the, the whole text is bizarre. Not only do we have this weird, something is going on that all of these people are hanging out at a pool to find mercy or grace. Meaning they're looking to something, they're looking to the wrong thing. And it's very interesting that this comes on the heels of John 4. Because remember the woman came to the well and Jesus is like, you can drink that, but you're going to thirst again. Water at a pool where there's waters in both. Both people, I mean, Tertullian would say it means baptism, exactly, all right? But uh, that's a whole different thing about Tertullian. Okay, we won't go there again. We don't ever want to read Tertullian ever again, okay? But the point is, it's interesting that in both cases, people are at something, and what Jesus is demonstrating, the text is demonstrating, this is not going to fix it. You, you can't look to the tangible, to the, to the literal. You've got to look to something spiritual. And so Jesus is like, do you want to be made whole? And what, what does the man say? Which is horrible, just, just so sad. The impotent man answered, sir, I have no man. And when the water is troubled to put me in the pool, but while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. That's a horrible way. For 38 years, he'd been trying to get healed, but nobody cares. Nobody is helping him. So once again, remember when we looked at the woman at the well? I said of all the things she was looking to, in other words, she thought of about her racial identity. I'm a Samaritan, right? She, this is Jacob's well. Are you better than Jacob? Wait, we worship in this mountain. You worship in them. She was looking to all of these things, but not relationships. She had five husbands. All of these things, and none of it was, was working. This man had been there for 38 years, Relying on superstition and possibly relying on other people. And where has he been left? Nothing. In other words, John 4 and 5 is demonstrating that in our lives we can run around looking for all of these things and we're not going to be left empty and without anything. Jesus is the only one who can resolve the problem. And then what does he say? Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, 
it is the Sabbath day, is it not lawful for thee to carry thy bed? Now we see another problem here. Right? Superstition's not going to help you. Other people are not going to help you. And clearly religion's not going to help you because these religious leaders don't care that he's been healed. They're worried about he broke some supposed law. Now, we could argue whether he broke a law or didn't break a law. That's a whole different discussion. But the point is, they're not, they're, do they even take time to rejoice for the fact that the man who's been there for 38 years can finally walk? That's religion, isn't it? That's reali- That's that, remember we talked about in Sunday school? That the law makes you self-righteous? They're not like... Man, praise God. They're like, well, you know, now you, you, here's my 47 list of, here's, here's all the rules. That's how I felt like when I became a Christian, right? Now, it, it seemed like nobody was super happy that I was no longer selling drugs, doing drugs, trying to kill people and all the other crazy things I was trying to do. It was all of a sudden now, hey, 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 hey. You can't listen to secular music. You can't dance. You can't do this. You can't. They gave me a list of 900 rules. I'm like, well, okay, well, that's good. Now I can go break all of, I'm going to go fall short of all of these rules. So I was like, I, I, I guess I'm just going to be a perpetual failure. I was, was a failure, become saved, and now I'm going to be a new kind of failure because I'm not going to do this right. Isn't it sad that that's where it looks, it goes to? He answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. They asked him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? It's just amazing. They don't even care that he can walk. That's, that's religion. And he that was healed uh, wist not who it was, for Jesus had, con- had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in a temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing cometh come unto thee. Now please note, that verse is, um, oh, that verse causes so many problems. That verse causes so many problems. Just so that we understand this, there's not a lot of, I have to do this quickly. I did an entire podcast about it. But this, this one, there's not a lot of easy ways to get around it, right? Because on one hand, it almost implies the reason he was messed up for 38 years because he had done something wrong, which that creates all kinds of problems. Second, it seems to imply that, hey, now that you're healed, if you do something, if you sin anymore, something worse is going to happen to you, which would then create all kinds of problems because what do we know this man's going to do? Sin. So this creates all kinds of, uh, all kinds of problems, right? So how do we, or, so then what most, com- what do you think most commentaries do? Well, Jesus didn't mean go and sin no more. What he meant to say is go and just don't let sin be the dominant thing in your life. But what, how, what does that even mean? Don't let sin be the dominant thing in your life. Because we're always in a perpetual state of sin is always the dominant thing in our life. I can give you one scripture. Be holy as God is holy. Do you ever f- fulfill that? No. So then sin is the dominant thing. in your, So like what does that even mean? My only, my, my only thing is this. This is what Jesus is doing. He does this frequently. Remember the rich young ruler? How, how did Jesus play that game? Oh, you want eternal life? Keep the commandments. Why would Jesus tell someone to keep the commandments? That's not how you get eternal life. Does that not seem broken? What should he say? Believe on me. But he doesn't say that. He tells the man to go keep the commandments. And what does the man say? Got that. 
And Jesus is like, good job, good job. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor. And the guy's like, no, I can't do that. Does Jesus say, come back, come back. I got a sinner's prayer for you to pray. And, and you have to look at that as a horrible thing. How is he, why is Jesus letting the man walk away? He gave him the law, and what did we see? What the law was supposed to do what? The man should have said, I can't do this. What's, what's the answer? But he wasn't driven to despair. He was driven to maybe an earthly sorrow. Remember Sunday school? Not a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, he would have just said. Remember when Peter got so frustrated, like, look, when, when Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to leave too? And remember what Peter said? Where else can we go? <laughs> well, he, in this case, I think what he's doing, he's healed the man physically. Has this man been healed spiritually? We have no indication of that, right? So he comes up and he catches, hey, go and say no more. Something worse is going to happen to you. He basically just gave him law. Go be perfect. This should have driven the man to say what? Well, then I guess I'm just going to go back and hang out at the pool because obviously something worse is going to happen to me. This was to drive him to despair. It's the same principle. It, because there's no other. Look, you can read all the other commentaries and say, well, Jesus is saying just go sin less. What do you mean sin less? That doesn't make any sense. He's, he's trying to drive him to the point of what? I can't do this. And then what, what happens? The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him all. We don't know how, how he felt about that, do, do we? It's, isn't it weird that it's missing in the text? Isn't it weird? Like you think you would at least get the, like the man went away sad or the man went away just, the man's just like, hey guys, look, just know it wasn't my fault. <laughs> hey, hey, don't, I don't want to get in any trouble with the religious leaders, right? Isn't that what he seems more concerned with? And therefore did the Jews persecute, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So what do you think the, point, the purpose of this sign is? We'll end with this. I don't think the sign is really on the miracle per se, do you? The sign is almost secondary. You know why I think the sign is secondary? He walked into a pool where there's all these people who are like, he only heals one person. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, that should bother you a little bit, right? Like, there's all these people and he walks up to one guy. Hey, do you want to be made better? Yeah, okay, rise up and walk. You're like, but Jesus, there's like a whole bunch of people here. Because that, that was secondary. It was a sign pointing to what? What was he ultimately pointing to? What do you think? Well, the miracle could point to his deity, but it sounds like the whole th- reason this all took place was to spark the, con- the debate with whom? The Pharisees. 
Not only they have the power to heal on the Sabbath. That he's God, right? I mean, look, I look at verse 18. Don't it, I think they got the sign, did they not? Therefore, the Jews sought more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, that God was his father. There's the whole point. You see how we can get into the text and turn this whole story into something other than... Everyone's like, Jesus is so compassionate. I don't know. I don't walk away from that story that Jesus is compassionate. Right? Because if he's compassionate, he only healed one person. And not only how compassionate is it to say, hey, Bobby, you healed? Hey, go and sit no more. Something worse is going to happen to you. That doesn't sound very compassionate, does it? That kind of scary, isn't it? I'd be like, uh, can you just take the healing back? Because I don't want worse. Right? I look, I, I, the problems I'm currently having, I don't want to go to the doctor, hopefully soon this week, and they say, hey, we're going to fix it, but if you sin, something, I'm going to be like, I'll just stick with this. Because I don't want worse. That doesn't sound compassionate. We, we missed the whole point of the story. He set the whole thing up to demonstrate what? He's God. He can heal whenever... He can tell someone something worse is going to happen to you. He literally can tell someone, go and sin no more. And if you do, so I can't tell someone that. He can. I can tell him that, but I have no power to make it happen. Right? That's, I think, the point of the story. All right, now, there we go. You see it as a sign. Now, you can look at the other signs. And we will, we will talk about it. There's probably more there, but that's the best I can do because I've already gone over time. But there we go. So even when I'm in pain, I go longer than I'm supposed to. But I, I wanted to make sure you got something today and you didn't feel like you get ripped off tonight. So there you go. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, I pray that we would understand that in many cases, the text is pointing to something other than what we see. And I pray that we would always be cautious to approach the text with care, that we don't go beyond what it says, but we don't miss what is actually there. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...